Romans 1, 18. <clears throat> For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I've simply called this message, Will You Face the Wrath of God? Now in the previous two verses, uh, Paul declares those powerful, hope-filled words, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Children, sometimes you play hide and seek and you are looking for someone who's hidden, and you uncover them, and it's a great moment of joy and laughter. And that is what the gospel does to the righteousness of God. It reveals it. It uncovers it. It, 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 it shows us God's righteousness, uh, that it is only one way for you to have the righteousness of God, and that is through faith in Christ alone. That's it. There is no other way for you or I to stand before a holy God and not be destroyed, to not be consumed. It's in Christ alone. It's by faith alone. And the Spirit of God takes that thought of by faith, uh, through faith, for faith, the righteous shall live by faith, and connects the glorious gospel to our verse today with the bridge of just that small word, for why? Why is righteousness only gained by faith? Why is Paul so eager to preach the gospel? Remember, this is written to a church. These uh, people are professing believers. He is eager to preach the gospel to a church. Why? What is motivating him? We're told for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Verse 18 really begins the book of Romans. We have been 17 verses getting introduction, getting thesis statements, foundation, but now we are in the thick of it. This is where the gospel proclamation begins. And for about two and a half chapters, Paul is going to focus on the sin of everybody. He's going to condemn Gentiles and Jews alike. And in chapter 3, we get those amazing words, there is none righteous, no, not one. What is the point of all this? To paint the backdrop as dark as possible to show the glorious light of salvation by faith alone. It's necessary. It's absolutely necessary. And so today, it is my responsibility, nay, my my privilege, and yet I do it with fear and trembling, honestly, to proclaim the wrath of God. Because that's what our text says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
The Bible says much about God's love. It says much about His forgiveness. It says much about His mercy and His compassion. But A.W. Pink said in his amazing book, The Attributes of God, a study of the concordance will show you that there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to His love and tenderness. Did you know that? And knowing how much the Bible talks about His steadfast love and the love of God and the forgiveness of God and the mercy of God, as much as the Bible focuses on that and draws our attention to that, it is a very sobering reality that it's not even close. That the wrath and anger and fury of God is talked about far more. Do you want to be biblically balanced? Do you want to talk the way the Bible talks? Then speak much of His wrath. The wrath of God from heaven. All mentions of hell, the lake of fire, the wrath of God all point us to the same reality. And this is what it is. It's as the psalmist said, that God is angry every day. As Jonathan Edwards so appropriately titled that message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. God is angry and he has a right to be angry. It's not like Jonah who was asked, do you have a right to be angry? And he said he did. He had no right to be angry. But God, on the other hand, has every right to be angry, and he is. The same God who is love is full of wrath, and he doesn't hide it. He's not ashamed of it, and neither should we be. So in our text today, I want to bring you all face to face with five truths. One, you must understand what the wrath of God is. Two, you must identify what the wrath of God looks like. Three, you must recognize who the wrath of God is meant for. Four, you must determine what causes the wrath of God. And then lastly, you must flee from the wrath of God. First, you must understand what the wrath of God is for the wrath of God. Uh, I don't know if you all are aware of this, but there is a trend going on right now in seminaries and in churches and theologians where they are seeking to do away with the wrath of God. In fact, one of our favorite hymns, In Christ Alone, it it has that that famous passage uh, where it talks about the wrath of God and people who sing that song ask the writers of it, can we remove that line? They don't want to sing about the wrath of God. And the uh, writer of the hymn so appropriately said, no, if you sing my song, you must include wrath. But what is this? There is a trend, a growing trend to get rid of God's wrath. People don't take it seriously and don't talk of it. So what what does it mean, the wrath of God revealed? The word that Paul uses here is an inner deep resentment that seethes and smolders. God's wrath is his holy hatred of all that is unholy. It's his righteous indignation, his righteous anger at everything that is 
unrighteous. It's his temper towards sin. It is not God's uncontrollable rage. It's not a vindictive bitterness. It's not God losing his temper. But it's this idea of a smoldering, seething, under the surface, hot, coal, burning reality, a disposition of God's heart after seeing the same thing over and over and over again. Two illustrations came to my mind, and if you forgive me, they're both personal illustrations, and they both have to do with burning things. Uh, This week, last week, we took down our Christmas tree, and I wanted to show our children what a Christmas tree looks like when it burns. Any of y'all ever burn a Christmas tree? An old Christmas tree? Quite an amazing thing. So we put it in the burn pile, and I, you know, they were all in safe distance, and I lit one of the, the branches, and within 10 seconds, the thing was blazing, high, flame, way up there, so hot, and then it was out. It blazes, it burns, and then it's gone. That is the word that the Bible uses for the anger of man. That's how we get angry. It's quick, it's responsive, it's irrational, it's emotional. That's not what the Bible is using here when Paul says the wrath of God. It's not this quick, spontaneous, random, emotional thing. On the other hand, Adonai and I were burning leaves, put a whole big pile of leaves Uh, And they were burning, and the fire was up, but then it looked like the fire went out. And as it grew later, uh, it looked like, oh, man, it looks like this thing's not going to keep burning until I took out the leaf blower. All the guys are like, amen. So take out the leaf blower, and we start blowing on this pile, and you begin to see what was underneath the ashes, this red, orange, yellow, glowing It was so hot. It didn't look like it because it was covered in these ashes, but underneath the surface, it was a blazing inferno. And Ian and Azariah found a rotten possum, and we put it on top of it and covered it with some ashes. And within maybe two minutes, there was nothing left but some teeth and a little bit of bones. That is the idea of the wrath of of God. It is this smoldering, not this quick blaze, but this ongoing, underneath the surface, constant, steady disposition of the heart of God in total and holy hatred and anger. Simply put, the wrath of God is the anger of God at what is being seen day by day. Secondly, you must identify what the wrath of God looks like. It says it's being revealed from heaven, meaning as a waterfall, as a waterfall flows almost from the very throne of God, from the mouth of God. It's the idea that all wrath comes from the lips of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's coming from him. It's not random. It's not spontaneous. It's not accidental. People talk about random acts of violence, senseless acts, that there's no explanation. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. That is not what the wrath of God is. It's coming from heaven, from the very throne, from the very mouth of God himself. In a a symphony, 
there's a conductor. And what he does is he gathers all the players of instruments so that he can have his piece that he wrote performed. And he needs this sound and he needs that sound and he brings them all together so that when they play together it makes this amazing piece of music it's a symphony likewise brothers and sisters we're looking at what the wrath of God looks like and when we oh, I'm going to take you through the scriptures and what you are going to see are the instruments that God uses to have his symphony of wrath from heaven performed. And it is quite a sound. You may say, I don't hear anything. The question is often asked, uh, not only do I not hear anything, but I think God is silent. Where is God? How can so much evil go on right now all around us and God does nothing? People talk about, well, the wrath of God is in the future. And we know that one day he will make everything right. But what about now? And you know what? Habakkuk asked the same question. In Habakkuk 1.13, he says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Have you ever wondered the same thing? Have you ever said like the psalmist in Psalm 73, why do the wicked prosper? Why are they able to do all the evil that they do? And it seems as though they, 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 they live long lives and they're unbothered by the, the things of this life. Where is the wrath of God? Do we have to wait for the end? Well, brothers and sisters, look at verse 18 again. Notice the language. Notice the tense the wrath of God will be revealed. What does it say? For the wrath of God is. That's present tense. That's going on right now. That's not talking about future judgment. Future judgment is coming. But that's saying right now, as Paul was writing this, and as I'm speaking to you, and at every period in the history of the world, the wrath of God is revealed. And you say, where? How? The point that I wanted to emphasize before we begin to look at how does it look is God is not blind. He is not silent. He is not just watching. He's not the watcher. He's not just doing nothing. No, he is responding and he's responding with wrath. And as I said, as he is putting together this symphony to proclaim the majesty of his wrath with all these instruments, listen to all that he uses. God uses the world. He uses the heavens and the earth. Genesis 6, 11. Now, the earth was corrupt, you all know this, in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. For behold, fast forwarding some after he describes the measurements of the ark, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. 
what do we see here? God uses the earth to pour out his wrath through a flood. But he has more than a flood. Deuteronomy eleven sixteen says this, Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will not pour out a flood. He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. Sometimes the Lord brings a flood and sometimes he brings a drought. Sometimes supernaturally he makes things like what we see in Exodus 9.22. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail, fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. Very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field and in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. You see what this is saying? The wrath of God comes from above. It is either the flood or it is the lack of rain. It is hailstones and flashing of fire. God even in Joshua had stones, huge stones, fall from the heavens. Joshua 10:11, as they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran. Notice again who's doing this. The Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. From above, the wrath of God using the heavens. But it gets worse. You've read this before in Numbers 16. There was a man named Korah, and he led a rebellion. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. The ground opened up and swallowed them. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them. This is not just an earthquake. Earthquakes don't split apart and then close over. No, God commanded the earth to open its mouth, swallow these people like a large run how can you run from the sky how can you run on the ground if the Lord may open it up and swallow you whole God not only uses the earth the heavens and the earth but he also uses animals great and small numbers 21 5 and the people spoke against God and against Moses why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness beware of complaining 
For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. How did the Lord respond? Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. God used snakes. Exodus 8.24, And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servant's house throughout all the land of Egypt. The land was ruined by the swarms of flies. I won't go through all the plagues of Egypt, but you do know many of them. God used animals. He used creatures. Leviticus 26 sums it up. Verse 21, then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. I will let loose the wild beasts against you. God has the wild beasts of this world restrained. And when he is done, he says, I will let them loose upon you. Which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your road shall be deserted. God uses the world. God uses animals. God uses sickness and disease. We're looking at what does the wrath of God look like and you must understand it because when you say it is being revealed and you say I don't see hellfire well here is how it is being revealed how many of you have heard of the black plague the bubonic plague now that was an an utterly destructive thing and how was it spread who knows rats Actually, the fleas on the rats. And they didn't know what was causing it. But long before that plague, 1 Samuel records another plague spread by the same thing. This is when the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines. And something happened to those people. Chapter 5, verse 9, after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city. Again, notice this is the Lord doing this. Against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. The word tumors is a kind of difficult word to translate. Why do I say black plague, bubonic plague? Because of chapter 6, verse 3 through 5. He says, so you must make images of your tumors, and notice this, and images of your mice that ravage the land. The understanding is the mice were spreading the disease which was causing the tumors, and how do they get rid of it was by making these golden tumors and these golden mice as an offering to God so that he would stop pouring out his wrath upon them. Long before there was the bubonic and black plague, there was this. 2 Samuel 24, 15, So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 
men. 70,000 people died by pestilence, not because of the transmission of some virus, not because people didn't have a vaccine or weren't wearing a mask, because God in his wrath poured out his pestilence upon the people. He uses sickness. This was actually one of the curses of the law in Deuteronomy 28, 58. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring, listen, extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting, and he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But he doesn't just use the sickness of the body. He also uses the sickness of the mind. Again, Deuteronomy 28, verse 28. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness and you shall not prosper in your ways and you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually and there shall be no one to help you. Zechariah 12.4 On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. We know about Nebuchadnezzar, but that is not the only occasion where God has taken the sanity of people because of his wrath. He said, I'll strike you with madness. I'll strike you with confusion of mind. Even your horses will be thrown into a panic. You won't know where you're going or which way is up. And this is all the wrath of God. God uses the earth. He uses animals. He uses sickness. He uses angels. First Chronicles 21, 15, and God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. I want you to really think about this because if you are not in Christ, this is the whole point Paul is bringing out. Why is it so important that salvation is by faith? You need faith. If you're not in Christ, then you are under this wrath. And how can you escape the sky or the earth or the animals or sickness? Where can you go from angels? God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. 2 Kings 19, 35. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. It was Joseph Stalin who said, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. And we can hear 70,000, 185,000, and it just goes over our head, but really think about that. 
everybody in this room would be dead like that. And we're not even, what, 100? 185,000 people. You don't even know 185,000 people. That would be everybody that you know, plus. Just like that. You say, well, all this is Old Testament. Acts 12, 22. First off, we don't need to make that distinction. It's the same God, but your point is taken. Acts 12, 22. The people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. God not only uses holy angels, he also uses fallen angels. He uses demons. He uses unclean spirits. 1 Samuel 16, 14, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from who? From the Lord tormented him. 1 Samuel 19, 9, Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house. Why was Saul constantly trying to pin David to the wall with his spear? Why? Was it just he ate something bad or he had a chemical imbalance or there was something resentful? No, this was because a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon him. Why? Because God was pouring out his wrath on Saul. He removed his spirit and gave him a harmful spirit to bring about his end. Where does it say God doesn't do this anymore? Judges 9, 23, and God sent an evil spirit. Have you ever read that? God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. Do you see what that's saying? God sent an evil spirit between these two so that there was a treacherous dealing between the two, and violence ensued. First Kings twenty two nineteen. And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. He has control of all spirits, holy and fallen. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab? that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead. Why did Ahab fall? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets." All these TBN, televangelists, money-stealing liars, why are they prophesying falsely? I think it's right here. 
God has turned them over to his wrath and lying spirits are causing their prophets to prophesy falsely. He said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. When Romans 1 says, haters of God, this is the God that people hate because this is what he does. Do you know him? How can you withstand evil spirits, holy angels, sicknesses, diseases, animals, flies, snakes, heavens, earth? How can you withstand such power and wrath? God uses men. He uses the nations. 2 Kings twenty-two sixteen. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. Well, how does God do this? As I said, he uses the nations. Jeremiah pled with the people, repent, repent, or who was going to come? Babylon. In Jeremiah 8.16, he describes this. The snorting of their horses is heard from Dan. At the sound of the neighing of their stallions, the whole land quakes. They come and devour the land and all that fills it, the city and those who dwell in it. For behold... I am sending among you serpents, adders that cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, declares the Lord. That's not literal snakes here. This is figurative language speaking of the nation of Babylon. Isaiah 10.5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Think of that. Was Assyria a godly nation? No. And yet the Bible says, their fury, their staff, is his fury. Against a godless nation, I send them. Assyria was godless. Against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. And then, of course, we know he uses godly nations, as he did in 1 Samuel 15, which we looked at uh, a few weeks ago. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have, do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And this is just a snapshot. There are over 600 references in the Old Testament alone 
to this kind of thing. Can you hear the symphony? The instruments that God uses to play His song of His great wrath. But not only must you identify what the wrath of God looks like in these events, here's something that we have to remember. As Christians, we love the types and shadows, don't we? The types and the shadows are so helpful. Think of the Passover. I mean, it's a glorious thing to see the the destroyer pass over the people who were inside with the blood on their doors, right? And you know this about every type and every shadow. The fulfillment is greater, better, and more glorious than the type, right? Thus it is. Christ is our Passover. He's so much better than the ceremony, than the feast itself, because He is the fulfillment, and He does rescue us from the wrath to come. The Ark of the Covenant was a glorious thing to see. Man, the the presence of God and somehow dwelling in the midst and on this box, He's seated above the cherubim, and yet we know that that is just a type and a shadow for the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, not in a box, but in who? Christ. The fulfillment is always better than the type. It's always stronger. The land of promise. What a sight that must have been to see. Trees and grass and forests and animals and the beauty of it all. A land flowing with milk and honey. And we know that that is pointing to the ultimate reality of what? Of heaven. Of paradise. See, the the type is good, but the fulfillment is bigger. Well, that's also true when it comes to wrath. The reality of God's eternal wrath is much worse than what we've looked at. We look at floods and hailstones and ground opening up and serpents and flies and beasts and disease and nations and all of that. But all of that is pointing only to the fact that something worse is coming Something greater is coming. Something more powerful and more terrifying than anything that I have painted for you thus far. And that is why Paul makes such a great point to emphasize the sinfulness of man so that everybody makes no excuse, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The prophets proclaimed this, this wrath to come. Isaiah said in chapter 13, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Jeremiah says in Lamentations, The Lord gave full vent to His wrath. You know, sometimes when you're um, in a room like, Right now, I don't know if y'all are hot or cold, it's hot up here, but these vents help to, to lessen the airflow, lessen the heat. But this says that God is going to give full vent. There will be no restriction. There will be no covering. There will be no, 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 no closing of the vent. It is going to be wide open for the fullness of his wrath to flow out upon All those who don't know Christ, do you know him? 
Are you safe from this wrath? Ezekiel 7, 5, Thus says the Lord God, disaster after disaster, behold, it comes. Listen to that word. It comes. An end has come. The end has come. It has awakened against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come to you. O inhabitant of the Lamb, the time has come. The day is near, a day of tumult and not of joyful shouting on the mountains. Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways and I will punish you for all your abominations. The wrath of God. Well, I trust you get the point. At this point, as we behold these terrifying verses about the wrath of God, not only must you understand what it is, define it, not only must you understand what it looks like and see the different ways in a temporal way as well as in an eternal way, but you must understand and recognize who God's wrath is against. Who is it for? Sometimes there's mail that comes to the house and we say, oh, Wrong address. This isn't for me. It wasn't addressed to me. But God's wrath is addressed to certain individuals. And who is that? According to this verse, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You notice the language he said, against all. No one is excluded. Nobody is left out. And more importantly, no behavior is left out against all what? All major sins, cardinal sins, venial sins. Is there this, well, God's wrath is poured out only for that major stuff. You know, like when you do that, that illegal stuff, when you do that big church discipline stuff, but not against um, gossiping or exaggerating or impatience, unkindness, disobedient to parents. Paul's going to lay out the whole list, and we're going to get into specifics, but the point is here, all ungodliness. Now, some people try to make a distinction between ungodliness and unrighteousness, and they say that ungodliness means toward God, like the first table of the law, and unrighteousness is towards man, the second table. And I agree with Calvin where he said uh, some make a difference between impiety and unrighteousness and think that by the former word is meant the profanation of God's worship and the latter injustice towards men. But as the apostle immediately refers this unrighteousness to the neglect of true religion, we shall explain both as referring to the same thing. You see what he's saying there? If you look down to verse 21 and 23, God is explaining exactly what this ungodliness and unrighteousness is. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, this is what it is. 
ungodly means you are doing, saying, responding, acting, thinking in a way that's not like God would speak or think or respond or act. It's ungodly. There's a term in the military when an officer commits a crime, it's called conduct that is, anybody know? Unbecoming of an officer and a gentleman. It's not becoming. It doesn't fit. It's not appropriate. That's not how officers act. Likewise, you were created to glorify God. You were made in the image of God to reflect how he is. That's what we were made for, to show the way we treat people, that's how God would treat people. The way we value the word of God, that's how God values his word. That's how God values his glory. That's how God values time and love and justice and righteousness and all the rest. But what have we done? We bear the image of God, but do not act like him. Ask yourself, this week, How much have your thoughts resembled God's thoughts? How much have your actions resembled God's ways? Are you godly? What have you really been thinking about this week? I mean, what are you really, really made of inside? When no one's looking no one's around, when no one can overhear, what are the thoughts? What are the desires? What is it you really live for and want? Is it him or is it this world? All ungodliness, the wrath is poured out upon. And not just the ungodliness of others. That is a problem that we have as people. We like to say, well, their ungodliness, but not mine. But on the day of judgment, that's not going to work. God is speaking directly to each of us individually. And all of us will give an account for our own lives. All ungodliness all unrighteousness of men. And as you look through the New Testament, that is what you see over and over and over again. Paul is saying this. Peter says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. You know, in Romans 2, Paul talks about that the... That the, the God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's like a balloon. You ever blown up a balloon and you put more air into it and more into it and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but it gets to the point where it cannot contain any more air and then boom, it pops. That is what 
This is saying that the storing up of wrath is building and rising for the day of wrath. And God has been kind and he's been patient and he's allowed opportunities to repent and to believe. He's given opportunities to look to Christ, but because of a hard and penitent heart, it's been rejected. Hebrews 10, 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The passage ends with, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There is a hand that is such a blessing that all believers are held in. And it says in John that no one can snatch you out of that hand. But God has another hand, a hand that is held out all day long to its stubborn and stiff-necked people. And if you fall into the hand of the living God in wrath, no one will be able to snatch you out of that hand either. Are you safe from the wrath of God? Well, I have more here than I can say about wrath, but I would like to bring out some words of Jesus. Uh, Matthew 5:29, Sermon on the Mount, he says, "If your right eye causes you to sin." Tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. People are saying, well, people go to hell because they walk into it. God is just giving people what they want. Since they don't want to be with him, he just gives them the desire of their heart. That's not what this says. This says that God throws people into hell. He throws them. And I tremble to think that there are some under the sound of my voice with all the warnings you've heard, will still be thrown. Will still be thrown. Which brings us to the next point. You must determine what causes God's wrath. Yes, it's towards the ungodly, and yes, it's toward the unrighteous, and, and this is a wrath that is both now and to come. It is a wrath that is talked about from the prophets to the apostles to Jesus Christ himself, the Lord. This is a wrath that is intense and holy and too great to bear. It's a wrath that's eternal. It won't stop. You remember Cain when God when God pronounced judgment on him and he said, my punishment is too much to bear. And what did God do? He lightened the load. But this wrath, you will cry, it's too much. Please stop. I can't take any more. And he will not. Why? Why such an intensity? Because all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In other words, this ungodly and unrighteous behavior is done by people who know better. 
This is not the action of an ignorant sinner. This is utter rebellion against light and truth. They push down truth. They try to silence the truth. People have taken the illustration of a beach ball. You ever taken a beach ball and you're in the pool or the beach or whatever and you try to hold it under the water? What happens? It pops back up, right? It won't stay down. Why? Because what's inside of it will not be held down. Likewise, every single human being is without excuse. We're going to see in weeks to come, Lord willing. Why? Because God has given truth. You know the truth. You know who God is. You know what he wants, but you intentionally suppress it. You push it down. You're sinning against the light. And remember what Jesus said in Luke 10, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. The thing that is so horrifying about that statement is none of those people had seen Jesus go to the cross yet. He hadn't died. He hadn't risen. The cannon hadn't been closed. None of that occurred yet. And the light that they had, he said, it's going to be worse for you than those people because you have more light. And you're suppressing it. You're sinning against the light. How much greater condemnation will fall upon our generation? How many sermons? How much Bible? How many books, how many songs, how many tracts, how many illustrations, church history, the Reformation. We have truth coming out of our ears. And if you and I suppress that truth so we can continue in our sin, woe unto us. That is the point here. That is why the wrath is so intense, because it's not ignorance. It's not like your child who did something wrong, but they had never been trained. They didn't know any better. No, 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 no. You knew, and you chose to go the complete opposite way. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That is terrifying. Spurgeon writes, those last words may be read who hold down the truth in unrighteousness. They will not let the truth work upon their hearts. They will not allow it to operate in their minds, but they try to make it an excuse for their sin. This is what we were talking about with the obedience is better than sacrifice. Well, the reason I'm disobeying you, God, is because they made me mad. The reason why I'm disobeying you is because they're not doing what they're supposed to. The reason why I'm doing this is because I've had a hard life or it's been a rough week or I'm on this or I have this going on. And God is like, you're suppressing the truth. None of those excuses are going to work on the day of judgment. What did I tell you to do? What light did I give you? What information do you already know? And are you living according to the light that you know? If not, beware. Beware. Because the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Well, this brings 
us all to the one place of hope. And this was the whole point of verses 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There's the power of God unto salvation. With such condemnation, with such wrath, with such terror all around us, and you and I can never live according to the standard of God, which is perfection, how are you going to be righteous before him? How are you going to be safe from this wrath that is now and to come, that is both temporal and eternal? There is one source of safety. There is one place of refuge, and it is Jesus Christ alone. He is the shelter. He is where you must flee from the wrath of God to. Psalm 55, 4 says, My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. I hope that's what happened in your heart and in mine, that you're feeling the anguish, the terrors, the trembling, the horror. Now, what does the psalmist say we should do? And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, Selah. And listen to this. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Hurry to find a shelter. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, Jesus Christ. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Behold, Jesus, the shelter and shield. He is the safe place. He lived perfectly. He obeyed every place where you disobeyed. He was full of love and holiness, righteousness and purity. He always did what was right. He was always pleasing to his father. Look to him. Trust in him. Look at how he lived. Look at how he prayed. Listen to how he dealt with people. Look at the compassion. Look at the fiery anger that he looked at the hard-hearted Pharisees with. Look at Jesus. In him is all you need to be safe from the wrath to come and then after a life of perfection after a life of obedience after a life of holiness and devotion to his father for us what does he do he goes to the cross he is a shield he's a shield psalm 28 7 the lord is my strength and my shield in him my heart trusts and I am helped. But you know what it happens with the shield? The shield is so you can hide behind it. But what happens to the shield? The shield gets the arrows. The shield gets the sword uh, thrust. The shield gets the spear. The shield gets the flame. The shield gets all of the rough treatment that should have been for us. Christ is the shield. And he takes the wrath of his father full, uncut, unedited. Oh, in hell, we would all cry, God, please spare me. Please stop. Please turn it off. I can't take it anymore. But the son of God cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took that wrath so that you could be spared. He is the shield and you can hide yourself behind him. But brothers and sisters, sinners, listen, please make sure that all of you is behind him. Don't leave some out. It's a narrow way. Enter in strong. 
drive in. Get all yourself behind Christ. Trust in him completely because even if a leg or an arm is left out, that wrath will consume you. Only those who are hidden within the cleft of the rock and the rock is Christ will be safe. Only those who are fully in the house when the destroyer comes will be saved from the, from the, from the wrath to come. Only those like Rahab when she had that scarlet cord and only those who were in her house who had that scarlet cord were safe from the destruction that came. Likewise, if you are not fully in Christ, if you're playing around with your soul, if you're compromising, if you're holding grudges or you're keeping secret sins or whatever you're doing, let it all go. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? It's not worth it. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And there is one place of escape. Flee to Christ. He knows what you've done and he will pardon you. He will love you. He will forgive you. He will save you. He will change you. He will not cast you off. Repent of the suppression of sin. Repent of your ungodliness. Repent of your unrighteousness. Turn your mind. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Look upon his wonderful face. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for one place of safety from wrath. And it's not by works. It's not by law keeping. It's not by being good enough. It's not by being obedient enough. It's not by uh, reading the word or praying or church attendance or fasting or any of this. It's not by evangelism. No, it is by faith in your son, faith in Christ alone. Help us, Lord, to look to your son who bore your wrath. And as we look around at this world that's full of pain and suffering, may we remind sinners the reason the world is broken, the reason why people suffer as they do is because God is angry, but there is one way to appease his anger, and it is his son. It's his son. Help us, Father, to live in light of this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.